We were working on things we were passionate about. Again, we were making good money. We lived in Cambridge and thought, why is this not clicking? Why are we not feeling every day like this is how I want to spend my time? So we sat down and had this conversation about when are you happiest, which is not something that we had ever talked about before. Welcome to the Smart Money Mama Show, where moms get real about money to help you find your financial confidence and live your best life. Now let's talk money, mamas. Hey there, I'm your host, Chelsea Brennan. And mamas, today on the show, we're talking to my good friend, Liz Thames, better known as Mrs. Frugal Woods. Liz is the creator of the award-winning personal finance blog, frugalwoods.com, and author of the book, Meet the Frugal Woods, Achieving Financial Independence Through Simple Living. In 2016, at age 32, she reached financial independence and left a successful career in Boston to create a more meaningful, purpose-driven life on a 66-acre homestead in the woods of Vermont that we all drool over on Instagram with her husband and their two daughters. Today, we're talking about what financial freedom means to Liz her journey from nonprofit fundraiser to homesteader, and how her life changed as she pursued and achieved FIRE, which stands for Financial Independence, Retire Early. You're going to love hearing this story. As always, stick around until the end of the show to hear my top three takeaways from this conversation with Liz, or you can head over to smartmoneymamas.com forward slash Liz for the complete show notes. Are you ready, mamas? Let's get started. Hey, Liz, how's it going? It's going good. Thanks for having me. I am so glad to have you here and to talk about your story, especially because my husband is so jealous of your homestead and loves watching all your pictures of the (laughs) things you guys are doing up in Vermont. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about where you live now and, and your current situation. Sure. My husband and I live on 66 acres in rural Vermont, and we have a two-year-old and a four-year-old, so we don't get anything done on those 66 <laughs> acres. No, we, <laughs> we, we do what we can. So we, uh, we have a vegetable garden. We have perennial food beds. So we have apple trees, plum trees, blueberries, blackberries, currants, which grow really well in Vermont. We primarily grow vegetables. Have you bit the bullet and gotten chickens yet? Not yet. I really, we were, we keep having the chicken conversation. I would like to get chickens. It just, it feels like getting, like having another baby and I'm just not there yet. <laughs> They're know. so easy. Really? See, I, people say that, but are they? <laughs> they really are. We, okay. I think like we can fill the food thing for them, the food and water, like once every four or five days. And then we just send the boys out to get eggs. They're pretty self-sufficient. The doors are even automatic, like on our coop. So like the sun rises and the door goes open and then they leave and come back in. They're very simple. We have a rooster though, who is, he wakes everybody up, I think in the neighborhood. (laughs) See that I don't need. I do not need a feisty rooster. (laughs) You could just get rid of the rooster. Give him to another one of your Vermont neighbors. There you go. (laughs) You got married at 23. We read in your book and on your blog. Did you think that by 33, you'd be living on 66 acres in the woods of Vermont? I did not. And now I'm 36. And it's hard to believe that I'm 36 and got married at at 24, which just feels so young. So no, I did not. I went to college. I had a pretty standard upbringing, a pretty standard launch into young adulthood, I would say. My husband and I met our freshman year of college. We, at that time, really thought we would have a pretty traditional lifestyle. So we would get married, we would get jobs, we would continue to work and advance in our careers, and we would probably live in a big city. So after graduation, I moved to New York City, and then my boyfriend, now husband, came, and we moved to the Boston area, and then on to Washington, D.C., and then back to Boston. So we sort of did all of the big East Coast cities, and what we discovered in that time period is that we were good at our jobs. We were able to advance in our careers. We were able to increase our income and we were able to buy our first home. So these were sort of the goals that we had articulated at, you know, I don't know, age 22 or 23, which again, just sounds like ridiculously young. What we started to realize long about 28, 29 is that we felt really unfulfilled So we had what we had conceived of as essentially our dream jobs. We were working on things we were passionate about. Again, we were making good money. We lived in Cambridge and thought, why is this not clicking? 
Why are we not feeling every day like this is how I want to spend my time? So we sat down and had this conversation about when are you happiest, which is not something that we had ever talked about before. It had always been a focus on really advancement and success and success as defined externally. So by those external metrics of what is your job title? You know, what is your income? What are you doing that's impressive? Not the question of when are you happiest? And what we realized is that we're happiest in the woods. We were happiest when we're hiking. So why were we living in a city with all of the attendant costs when where we really wanted to be was in the woods? And so we started talking about moving somewhere more rural. Initially, we thought, okay, you know, maybe we could do this when we're 65, right? Maybe we could do, okay, maybe when we're 55, or maybe it could be like a vacation cabin type thing that we drive to on the weekends. And so we sort of mold this over and and let this idea sink in. And then we came across the idea of financial independence. And we thought, well, if we could earn more and save more, we could reach financial independence and then we could leave the city. And we could do that sooner. What is financial independence to you guys? To me, financial independence is having the ability to choose to work, but to not have to work. And for us, it's really about freedom and flexibility. So creating different income streams, creating different ways of earning money, either passively or actively, and finding a way to create a lifestyle that involves all the things you enjoy doing every day. And for us, it does not involve going into an office. So what we realized is that initially we thought, okay, we really want to quit our jobs. And I think it was that we wanted to quit living in the city and commuting into an office every day. I actually, I really like my job and my husband really likes his job. I think it was this evolution of realizing, again, how do you craft that lifestyle? And so for us, it really was working remotely from the woods of Vermont. So I want to go into how you, once you guys discovered financial independence, what you saved, but I want to go back for a second because in Meet the Frugal Woods, which by the way, is beautifully written. You're talking about a story when you first moved to, when you moved to DC and you were trying to do full-time school and full-time work and you're constantly stressed out and buying junk food at 7-Eleven so that Nate doesn't know you're eating so much junk food. Can you tell us a little bit about what that point in your life was like and what you expected DC to be like that just didn't live up to what you, what you wanted? Mm, You picked like the worst part of my life. I like it. I like it. So I was probably, I don't know, 26 and, um, We were in Washington, D.C., and I was working full-time at American University while getting my master's degree, which financially is a great choice because the school offered tuition remission. So I only paid taxes on the degree, which is great. So I got essentially a free master's degree. But that meant I was working all day and then going to school in the evening and then doing homework all weekend. This is not really how I thought it would play out. And again, why... As in retrospect, I think, why was I even getting a master's degree? And again, it was that focus on external metrics of success. I thought I would look more successful if I had a master's degree. I thought I would be more marketable or be more respected in my field. And I think while some of those things are true, I never really stopped to think, do I want to be studying this? Do I want to be putting in the time? I was just doing it. I was on this track. I had this plan of what I thought thought my life should look like. What I discovered over time is that when I'm doing that, I am spending more money because I'm not happy. I am throwing money out the window, trying to find a way to ease the routine, right? So convenience foods are the, are the easiest example. I was busy and stressed, no time to cook. And so you just buy your meals out. And I I think it's very easy to get into that mode where you're essentially paying to support a lifestyle that you don't even enjoy. That was such a wake up call for me that I don't like what I do. And yet I am spending far more money consuming far more calories than I need to be because I'm trying to assuage this pain over this life that I, by the way, have created for myself. (laughs) That's a really hard realization. Like I have no one to blame, but myself. I think I had envisioned DC as this sort of opportunity for us to go to cocktail hours and be very social and engaged in the political landscape. And there was an element of that, but we did not enjoy it. And I think that that was the hard realization that constant networking, constant 
discussion of your career, which is kind of the way that a lot of conversations in DC progress. That's not what we wanted to be doing. We were extremely privileged throughout all of this, right? We had great jobs. We were making great money. So privilege is is a strong current through all of this. It's very hard, again, to realize that the life that you have created is not making you happy. And so how can you step back and really analyze all the money you're spending and figure out, am I spending in service of these long-term goals or am I just spending to make today easier? I think this is such a common narrative for high achievers and perfectionists or whatever the word you want to use is that like we create this very long-term plan in our head of how things should be. And when it's not that way, we spend a certain amount of time trying to force it to be right. Like whether it's just spending too much, like you're talking about, or just really being upset with the people around us when it's not their fault, we've kind of created this expectation of how things are supposed to be. So this is also when you started to discover the woods, right? Because you weren't always an outdoorsy person. So how did you get into hiking and, and all that kind of stuff? My husband made me go. <laughs> I so, so my husband, Nate, has always been, I joke, he's always been like an engineer lumberjack. This is like my vision of him. <laughs> he was an Eagle Scout, just like really loved, I think he was an Eagle Scout. He was some sort of scout for a long time. <laughs> I'm fuzzy on the details. Really enjoyed time alone in the woods, you know, did a lot of like solo hiking, solo camping. He grew up in the suburbs, but was always looking for opportunities to get more rural. And so he volunteered at a summer camp and then eventually was hired to work there, I think, because he was like around so much. So like, do you want us to pay you? So he got to, you know, drive a backhoe and like fell trees and ride a horse and just kind of have all of these experiences that in the suburbs are not always available to you. And through that, he realized he loves the isolation and the self-reliance and just the nature, the natural world. And so he'd been trying to get me more into this. And I was like, I don't, I was a Girl Scout, but it was more like selling cookies and like weaving potholders. So I, you know, I'd done done some camping and hiking. I'm like, yeah, it's fine. But He, when we were in D.C., could really see this kind of trap that I'd put myself into, this spiral of always working, always studying, and just constant stress, and said, we're going hiking. I was like, I am not. I am. You're going hiking. I am not going hiking. I'm going to stay here and eat Cheetos and read this textbook, because that's a cool way to spend a Saturday. He was like, no, we're going hiking. And so we went to Rock Creek Park, which is in the middle of D.C. It's a really great resource right there. You can take transit to it. You can walk to it if you live nearby. We went on this hike, I mean, which, which now, like, hike, it was like a nature walk. <laughs> At the time, I thought it was a hike. I realized that it was really relaxing, and it was really enjoyable, and I was actually getting something out of it. I was getting a sense of peace. I was getting time with my husband, and I was getting some internal quiet that I really needed. And so we started hiking every weekend. It really became a thing. We sort of went through all of the hikes in the DC area, like increasing in their difficulty level and just loved it. And then when we moved back to Cambridge, we continued to hike mostly in the white mountains of New Hampshire. So, which is a pretty decent drive. We didn't have kids at the time, so we could do things like that. So we'd get up, you know, we'd like get up at 4 a.m. on a Saturday and drive to the mountains and so that we could summit and and descend before the sun went down. And and we just, we grew so close, you know, closer in our relationship than we ever had been because we had this shared passion for something that essentially does not have a higher aim. We were not going to monetize this. We were not going to become like hiking guides. We were not going to become professional hikers. It was just the enjoyment. It's also the exercise so that, you know, there are sort of auxiliary benefits, but realizing that I could enjoy myself while doing something that did not have external success or validation. Because again, like I'm a slow hiker. I was not going to be like the best hiker. <laughs> I was not going to get an A plus in hiking. And so it, it really was just doing it for ourselves. And we found, so when I was hating my job in Boston, my husband and I found we had some of our best discussions when we just went out in the woods, right? And we'd hike kind of in silence for the first 30 minutes and then ended up having these amazing conversations. It's like my favorite thing. And now even with the boys, like we can put them in the packs and at least they're not distracting us so we can still talk. I feel like we've aged out of that. The four-year-old's too big. I feel like we've like hit this 
Because at first with the baby in the pack, I was like, this is totally workable. Like I can totally hike with a baby in the pack. And then as they've gotten older, like they're too young to walk, but too old to carry. I don't know. Yeah, we still have the four-year-old in the pack, but we look out that he's super skinny. <laughs> so he's like, we just had his four-year-old appointment and he's like 32 pounds. So oh. he's, he's tall, but he's just really skinny. So we can still carry him around. So as you guys are starting to have these conversations, you discover the idea of financial independence. You talked about in your book and you talked about in your blog that you and Nate are best when you're working together towards something. So how did you develop a plan for what came next with financial independence? Well, when we realized that we didn't want to be in the city anymore, we started thinking about what our options were. And I will say that he and I have always had this eye out towards sort of like exit strategies. (laughs) I don't know. It's just kind of the way that we both work is thinking about like, okay, if this does not work, what is the plan B? And we have always had that mentality, both of us since childhood. So I, you know, it doesn't, I wouldn't say that it's terribly strategic thing. It's kind of how we're hardwired. It's like, all right, what, where are the exits in this aircraft? He and I know, like, I mean, like we're, we're on it. All right. This is, this is just kind of how we work. And so when we got engaged at 23 and married, we realized we wanted to save money. So we were extremely privileged that we had no debt. Our parents had helped us pay for college. We had both worked jobs all through college, had scholarships, whatever. But, you know, mostly it's that our parents helped us pay, right? We had that extreme fortune and privilege. And so we came out of undergrad with no debt. We went to a really cheap in-state school was the other thing, University of Kansas. And, you know, and their tuition has subsequently increased so much, so tremendously. And so I feel like we just were so fortunate that we went to school when we did and just happened to graduate before the 08 recession. So we graduated in 06. So this is just like, just so fortunate that that was when we were born and that was when we graduated. So we were able to get jobs before the recession. And then we were able to keep those jobs during the recession. Both of our companies had pretty substantial layoffs but we were able to keep our jobs. And that was a big wake up call for us that we don't want to have debt. So we never had credit card debt. We never spent more than we earned. In those early days, we were pretty much spending what we were making just to afford our rent on our, we lived in this basement apartment in Cambridge, but even still the, the rent was expensive and neither of us was making very much. But from there, as our salaries increased, we saved more and more of our income. So it's it was like this little chart or graph that kept our living expenses very much the same while our incomes increased. And so the savings rate became higher. And that's because our income increased. There's not like any magic really to this math. It's just spending way below your means, way below your income and saving the difference. So we started doing that at a young age not really for any great purpose. It was just this sense, and I think it was really fueled by the 08 recession, that the world is uncertain. We are not guaranteed jobs. We are not guaranteed pensions in the way that our parents were and our grandparents. And we had this very sort of existential feeling that we needed to take care of ourselves. I kind of have to credit the recession for sort of giving us that conservative saving mindset. So we had been saving. The goal had been to buy a house. And when we went to buy a home, we decided to look for a property that could be turned into a rental eventually. We wanted an out. We didn't know what that out would be, when it would be, if it would be in five years, 10 years, 20 years. But we said, listen, we're going to buy a property in a town where 60% of the units are rentals. Let's get something that would translate into a rental pretty well. We ended up buying a house that had, that has a lot of bedrooms and that really lends itself nicely to being rented. It was not the nicest place we looked at. We could have bought like a much nicer sort of renovated condo with like high-end appliances, but the, the margins would not have been good for renting it out. We had purchased this house with an eye towards being a rental. And so we had sort of these avenues, these options available to us because we'd been saving and we realized, okay, if we save more, we will be able to, again, put the distance between the spending and the income, make it even greater. But I actually want to go back because you talked about keeping your living expenses very much the same as your income grew. And that's not standard, right? A lot of people see lifestyle inflation. So with friends and social network, how did you make sure to keep your spending low and save that gap? 
and not fall into the traps of, I mean, Cambridge is an expensive city. Like it's not cheap. So how did you balance that? I think we did it in part by experimenting with spending. There were some periods there, a couple of years there, where we spent a lot of money. And for us, it was a realization that after a certain point, the amount of money that you spend is going to deliver a lower and lower return of enjoyment. So up to a certain point, we all need enough money to eat, to live, you know, to be fulfilled that there there is a baseline amount of money that everybody needs, I think. But spending above and beyond that was not giving us the same return. So the, the easiest way to think about this is like having a meal out at a restaurant. Okay, having a meal out at a restaurant once a month is nice. Okay, what if I did it once a week, twice a week? What if I did it every single day? In experimenting with that, what we realized is like eating out every day does not give you the same return on enjoyment as eating out once a week or even once a month because you're sort of numbing yourself to the pleasure. It is becoming expected and routine. So it's no longer a treat. That's why it's called a treat because it's rare, you know, and you can actually increase your enjoyment and your happiness by doing things less frequently, which sounds very counterintuitive. And my children do not believe this at all. But like, trust me, one cookie is going to be better than 10. You just don't know it yet. There's a fitness person that I follow that on Halloween let their kids eat as much candy as they wanted just to be like, see how you feel the next day? Clearly, one piece every once in a while is fine, but I'm going to just show you that the stomach ache and horrible behavior that we're seeing is because I let you eat a basket of candy. Oh my gosh, my kids are way too young. They would be like, awesome. I feel Very great. Cool. Bring it again. They would. Exactly. Maybe when they're older. Their kids a little older, yeah. yeah. <laughs> my four-year-old will like eat and he's like, my stomach hurts. And then, can I have another cookie? I'm like, okay, you just said that your stomach hurts. That lesson comes later, delayed gratification. But again, this was the realization for us. I called it the spending rum springa. If you are a person who is questioning if you could be happy with less, really and truly spend as much as you want. Do it for a month, do it for two months, see how you feel at the end of it, and then go on a really bare bones budget and notice the differences that arise. So I kind of sound like a yoga teacher, like feel what's arising. <laughs> notice the sensations. I've been doing a lot of yoga. It sounds ridiculous until you try it is really the only way I can describe it. But there is this concept of hedonic adaptation. And there is this concept of we will acclimate ourselves to whatever reality we present. So I think exercise is an excellent analogy. People can acclimate themselves to running marathons, right? So you you can get yourself used to sort of any level of spending, any level of purchasing. And it was for us truly realizing, again, that the happiness return was was just not there. When we made that realization, we then did our very first ever uber frugal month, and we went through line by line every single expense and said, is this bringing us happiness? Do we need to spend this much in order to get the same return? Which expenses are in service of a long-term goal and which are in service of this short-term treat yourself hits of pleasure? That was essentially the way that we crafted our savings budget at that point in time. And you guys got into a little bit of like, competition is probably not the right word, but like new creative ways to be frugal, right? Like what were some examples of things you guys did differently, even just like setting your house set up or whatever to save more money? Totally. I think there's this conception that frugality is all about just deprivation and elimination, elimination. It's not. It's a lot about substitution. One example I love is yoga. I was doing yoga in the city, which was something like $21 a class. I mean, really kind of ridiculous. I was going like four times a week and Nate was going with me too. And we always thought, oh, this is a virtuous expense because it's exercise. And to an extent, I think that's true. But then what I realized is that I could volunteer at the front desk of the yoga studio, check people in for class, wipe down the mats afterwards, like a total of like 25 minutes of work and get a free hour and a half long yoga class. So again, I did not have kids at the time. So the return on my investment was perfect. I no longer do that because I have children and nothing is possible. But I think that, (laughs) kidding, kidding. I think that when you have that creativity of, you know, how can I trade time for money? That's one option. Another thing is actually thinking about ways that you can save time and money. For us, that was haircuts. I cut my husband's hair, he cuts my hair. 
If we did both of our haircuts back to back, it would take us a total of 20 minutes, maybe. The amount of time that we are saving by not making an appointment, driving or walking to the salon, waiting for, you know, to have the haircut, driving back home, we're saving an astronomical amount of time and stress because we don't have to worry about fitting it into our schedule. It can happen whenever it's available and it's completely free. So we've saved thousands of dollars over the years on haircuts, which sounds like a very minimal expense. And all of these things sound like minimal expenses until you start stacking them on top of each other, right? So you're saving the money on the yoga class, you're saving the money on the haircut. Then we stopped eating out. Eating out is a real problem for me. I don't feel it's a problem. I love it. It's a problem for my health and my pocketbook. I would truly eat out like every single meal if I could. I just, I love food. And we were eating out a lot. And so I recognized that that needed to go away. So we did a wholesale fast on that. We just stopped eating out. We did not go out for, I don't know, maybe an entire year. We now eat out at least once a month. We have a date night, but that's a very specifically selected expense. So we stopped eating out. That was another expense. And did you guys have to learn how to cook or embrace cooking? No, thank goodness my husband knows how to cook. He, so he grew up with his mom as an excellent, excellent cook. And she taught her kids how to cook when they were in middle school. They were in charge of making dinner for the family, which I just think is brilliant. She made them go to the grocery store, buy the ingredients. And I asked her like how many pots and pans were burned and ruined. And she said, you know, a couple and a couple of meals were burned. She said, but it's very worthwhile to, to really let them have that experience of meal planning. Consequently, my husband and his siblings are all just like Excellent cooks, very proficient. They can take like dried beans and onion and create like this meal you like you've never had. And so I'm I'm deeply grateful to him. And he really has expanded his skills over the years. He watched a lot of cooking shows, reads a lot of blogs about cooking. So it's a it's kind of an ongoing learning experience for him. And I cook as little as possible. <laughs> so this works out. Grilled cheese. Carrots out of the garden. <laughs> I actually did grilled cheese and set a piece of toast on fire. So uh, Nate came downstairs. He was like, is something burning? I'm like, well, it was. So he has requested that he make that. I'm like, that's fine. Okay. I can make that. All right. So carrots out of the garden. Carrots, I, Washed oh, yeah. maybe. Yeah. I can totally harvest. I can harvest and plant like nobody's business and I can can and process. I'm getting better. I can stuff. So again, it's this question of wholesale review of your finances. You know, I, I really... I really do not like the financial advice that's like, just look at your big three expenses or just look at, you know, your groceries. No, 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 no. You're looking at every single thing. I mean, truly, I'm looking at like the $2 I spent at CVS because it, it is in doing that that you're able to figure out every opportunity to save. And again, there's a lot of substitution. So finding a cheaper cell phone provider, right? I'm not saying give up your cell phone, but I am saying find an MVNO that will give you service for a fraction of the price. Today's podcast is brought to you by Policy Genius. Mamas, we know insurance is a crucial part of financial security, and we know we need to shop around to get the best price. But getting multiple quotes and remembering to check back in to see how rates have changed can be a pain. That's why I love Policy Genius. Whether you're looking for term life insurance, homeowners, or disability, you can get multiple quotes from trusted providers in just minutes. And Policy Genius owns the process from start to finish. Choose a policy that fits your needs and purchase right on the Policy Genius site. No annoying phone calls or emails from a dozen providers you didn't pick. Head to policygenius.com forward slash smart money mamas to see if you could be saving money on your insurance needs today. Well, to be able to go through your budget and see what's actually bringing you joy, you have to know what you want and what makes you happy, right? Like you have to, you talk about doing the like full spending month or two and then cut, complete cut back, but it's also about having long-term goals, right? If you're someone who is unhappy where they are and don't know how to get out of it, how do you do this review? Where do you start? I think it does come down to some work that you need to do on your own. So creating a dream bio is one way to sort of get at that goal. So write down what you wish your bio was. If you're thinking about it sort of from a career perspective, you're being introduced to speak at a conference. What is it that you want to say you've done? The other thing that can work is writing your obituary. It's a little bit morbid, but I think it really works because you're imagining yourself at the very end of hopefully a long life what is it, again, that you want to say that you did during 
your life? What are the things you want to be remembered for? Do you want to have children? Do you want to have a partner? Do you, what, what are the ways that you want to contribute to your community? I think it's a nice way of thinking very holistically about the type of life you want to lead. So doing that kind of future visioning is, is very helpful to me. And I actually do that pretty often throughout the week when I'm obsessively vacuuming. I'm like, well, I don't really want my obituary to say that I vacuumed all the time. So I'm going to stop and I'm going to go outside. You know, it's having that awareness that the choices that we make every day are going to create the kind of life that we lead. So those are two ways of doing it. Another way is just writing down where I want to be in five years and 10 years and thinking about it from the perspective of your lifestyle, your career, and your finances. What are the things in those three categories that you want to be able to do in 5, 10, 20, 30 years? I'm curious what's in your, when you do those future vision thoughts, and especially now that you've already achieved financial independence, what's the long-term vision? But I think just real quickly to mention to everybody, like it comes back to what Liz said at the beginning of identifying what makes you happiest. I think sometimes we sit down and we future vision and we're still stuck in what do other people want me to do? And what do other people think I'm amazing for if I achieve and not connecting with the happy thing? So there's a lot of internal work that has to happen here. But now that you're in financial independence and you're living in your your homestead, what are your five and 10 year vision dreams? Mm, that's a good question. And I think too, I've mentioned happiness a lot. And I think the word that I should be saying is fulfillment because it's not it's not really about like being happy all the time per se. It's really about deeper fulfillment. So creating relationships that sustain you, creating a lifestyle that to you has meaning. And I, you know, I cannot emphasize enough that this is different for everyone. And I love seeing it play out from the stories I hear from Frugalwood's readers, just how differently everyone achieves that contentment and that fulfillment. So it's, it's not about sort of molding yourself into this prescribed notion of what other people do or what I do or what Chelsea does or what anyone else specifically does, but it's really knowing yourself. So I think for me now, as I look towards the future, a lot of it is focused on our kids who you can probably hear in the background because we <laughs> schools are closed in light of coronavirus. So they are running around with my husband. I think they're playing tag inside. That's what it sounds like. <laughs> So why not? Hopefully there's nothing breakable <laughs> down there. We've broken a lot of plates. Wait, you have two, you have a four-year-old and a two-year-old and you still keep breakable things in the house? Because we've had to just get rid of all of those things. No, you know what? The danger is like the, the water glasses and the plates. That's that's pretty much it. Like nothing else is nothing else is breakable. We they broke so many soap dispensers, like ceramic soap dispensers, that we just have plastic now. It's like, all right, plastic soap. I cannot I cannot clean up another broken ceramic soap dispenser. We were at my mom's house the other day and realized that we came in and the two-year-old was trying to pull her TV off the TV stand. And like, I just forgot that other people don't bolt those things to the wall. <laughs> I know. Can I just say it is so hard to go to people's houses who don't have kids? It's impossible. It's. I mean, we really just have taken to, we just invite people over here because it's like, I cannot go into your beautiful environment of like nice things. I just can't. So I really... So appreciate having friends with little kids where you're like, well, your house has also been destroyed, so it'll be fine. <laughs> What's the worst that can What's happen? What's the worst that can Although what I've discovered is that toddlers, in even in a, an environment that is toddler-proofed for another toddler, will find a way to break something. Because it's not there. It's like they don't know the boundaries. So it's like every time somebody comes to our house, they break. Every time we go to somebody else's, my kids break up. And they're like, oh, my kids never thought to reach there. As my four-year-old like grabs the one like glass bird off the, it, so it's mass destruction. So my goal for the next five years is to not have the house destroyed, but it is, I have found that with having children, a lot of the goals have become much shorter term because they change so much every day. And so I think, you know, my husband and I sort of have goals for us as a family and for the kids and for things we want to do with the children. And it is pretty short term in a lot of ways. And so I think that has worked well for us because taking it day by day is a lot easier because it allows us to adjust and adapt to where the kids are at. In the long term, you know, in the long, long range, I really see us staying in this house, staying on this property. I think we just were very fortunate that we found the right place the first time. I have a lot of friends who also want to homestead and, and sometimes they find the right homestead on the first try or sometimes they need to rent or live somewhere for a while and move again. You know, there's so many different ways to to do this. 
And for us, we just, this land and this property is really facilitating the things we want to do. And we've been able to plant, like I said, you know, a lot of fruits and vegetables, which is what we had always wanted to do. We just, we seem to have the soil, the space, the sunlight, you know, it's like all of these things are lining up. So I really see us staying here. Every year, we just kind of advance in our quote unquote homesteading, homesteading goals. So, you know, last year we made maple syrup for the first time. So this year we're making probably about double the amount of maple syrup because we know what we're doing. We planted blueberries two years ago. So this year we should have a pretty big blueberry harvest. So I will preserve those in a different way. So it's kind of like each year is sort of reflecting on the mistakes of the last year. And then you just make a whole new set of mistakes in like a different way. So we've got like so many different ways to kill a tomato plant. Like we've done just about all of them. There's a lot of ways. This is very finicky. I think for us, it is kind of a, a shorter term vision with this longer term goal of being here, of being ever more sustainable. I do see us getting chickens, maybe a cow. I don't know. My four-year-old really wants a cow. I'm like, so what is mine? What is the obsession with the cows? Like, they're in like every book. And our friends have cows. Like we have visited cows. I'm like, okay, they are large. They're very smelly. It's not, you can't like have We've them We've talked the about house. the mini jerseys. Oh, they only do like a gallon of milk a day and they're so cute. (laughs) That would be more sustainable because that's the other thing. You got to milk it. And then you have like, I mean, you really have a lot of milk and my kids are lactose intolerant. So I see this as a (laughs) problem. I know, I know I can't, there's no amount of logic here with the four-year-old that, that like, she's like, my husband has like a personal vendetta against goats. (laughs) She's not like goats. So goats are probably not going to happen. Pigs. Pigs, I could really see. My husband has a thing about pigs. He wants pigs he wants really pig. badly. Yeah, they actually seem to be kind of lower maintenance. You know, and They're you can like pig tractor them, like move them around, you know, to different spaces on your land so they can consume different foliage. I just know my husband's going to become emotionally attached to the pigs. Oh. And then we're just going to have pigs. <laughs> I'm like, see, are you really going to be able to slaughter the you pigs? You have to. I know. That's the thing is you, you have to be okay with the slaughter season. Mm. Yeah, I know. All right. We're going to get off our homesteading conversation. I'm sorry. I am No, it's, it's so tempting to me because we are just like, that's, a, we talk about the right place at the right time, right? So for us, when we left my hedge fund job and we were trying to decide where to go, I think we actually talked to you a little bit about potentially moving up to Vermont. It's a place that we love. My mom has a house there, but she lives full time in Connecticut. So we decided to buy a house in Connecticut that could turn into a rental when we're done with it, but that's a mile down the road from her and her boyfriend. It's great school systems. And I was like, okay, we need a little help. <laughs> for a little while and we'll have chickens and we'll have garden beds, but like not, you know, not a homestead, not a true homestead and we'll move eventually. But I I know not everyone, it's not, not a lifestyle for everybody for sure. Felling your own trees and, and pigs then. You have to know yourself. And I think it's also being flexible and having agility. So even with the homestead, we have an exit strategy. We do not intend to use it because we would like to stay here, but I think the 2008 recession and then, you know, unfortunately the, the coronavirus pandemic has really shown us you you do not know and you can plan and predict and calculate. But when you give yourself flexibility, you know, when you enshrine an ability to not live paycheck to paycheck, when you create a way to build this sustainability and flexibility, you have options. And I think for me, ultimately, frugality and financial independence is all about having options. Totally agree. So people that are starting to embrace the extreme frugality, maybe they go sign up for your Uber frugal month challenge. What advice do you have for them of this is a real breakaway from consumerism, right? We're going to have friends that don't agree with it or don't believe in it. How do we make this adjustment and stick to what really matters to us? I think you have to remember that it's difficult. The first month of doing anything is the hardest. The first month of a diet, of an exercise program, of having children anything, the first month is going to be the most difficult. So you need to have that vision of I'm going to do this for a month. And that's why the challenge is a month long. It's free. So you don't, you're not losing anything. Super frugal. Super frugal. But if you stick with it for the entire 31 days, I did a long month. It's a 31 day month. You can sign up for it at any time. So you, you know, you can start and, and stop it at any, at any time. But the idea is that over the course of those 31 days, you are thinking not just about the money, but also the psychology. The money is ultimately just a spreadsheet, right? It's a calculator and a spreadsheet. It's pretty straightforward. What's much more important is your emotional attachment to money and your emotional reaction to spending money because we all have it. And it, you know, money is very tied up in 
our perceptions of self-worth, of success, of fulfillment, of happiness, fill in the blank. Money kind of is the stand-in for us in our society. And so divorcing yourself from that idea and really doing self-reflection on why is this hard for me? You know, what, what, what are these excuses that I keep coming up against? Why do I feel like I can't save more, earn more, spend less, whatever it is? What, you know, what, what's the root of the reason? So you're kind of doing like some therapy and some, some, um, self-analysis throughout the course of this, because again, if it was just like the money, Chelsea and I could just tell you in like five minutes what you need to do. I think allowing yourself that, that grace to understand that this is going to be difficult because I have a lot of emotional baggage tied into this. Real quick, back to the financial independence. Can you explain to us what the black and white math is? Like, how do you set a goal for when you're truly financially independent? You're not going to like this because I'm going to say it varies for everybody <laughs> because every, I, I can't. The, Everything in personal finance varies for it everybody. It does. I'm sorry. Like everybody's lifestyle is different. Everybody is a different age, has a different level of health, has a different family composition. You know, we have kids. That is very different than if you are single and don't have kids. You know, if you have pets, I mean, where you live in the country, whether or not you will need to take care of aging parents, you know, whether or not they will be financially reliant on you if you have siblings or anyone else in your family that, you know, you're financially responsible for. So it's just, it is going to vary, but I think you can take all the inputs. And so you're looking at your income, you're looking at your expenses. If you have debt, you're moving that debt off. And then you are looking at your assets. A common rule of thumb that I don't, I have to say, I don't necessarily agree with this. So it's, I'm, I'm hesitant to even mention it, but a, a common rule of thumb is that you could live on a 4% spinoff of your investments. So that means that whatever you have invested, if you did a 4% drawdown, that would cover all of your living expenses every year. There have been some studies that show that that's a safe rate of withdrawal. In the same breath, I will say there are studies to the contrary and that we do not draw down on our assets. So for us, financial independence has really been about creating diverse income streams that would enable us to not work. For us, it's kind of a much more holistic view of what financial independence could be, which is why, again, I, I, I do not really like prescribing to people because I think it, your situation is going to vary so much. Absolutely. So guys, on the 4% rule, if you were going to use it, which I agree it has boundaries, if you lived on $40,000 a year, you'd need a million dollars in assets to be able to draw down on is the basic math. But I completely agree. I mean, we, on the technical 4% rule, right, we're not, my family is not financially independent. We were on that role, but we created the freedom enough that we could go choose a different path. I could come run this business and not be worried about our retirement funds and things like that. So it's all about options, like you were saying. And I think that that's the biggest thing. And I think for a lot of people who are financial independence, financially independent, it's not about never working. For us, that's, that's not what it is. It's allowing me to work part-time to be with the kids more, but I still want to work, right? And so it's kind of knowing, again, this is where the fulfillment and the contentment comes in and really knowing that I am happier spending less and working less. That for me is much better than if I was working a ton and spending a ton of money. All right, Liz. So what about people who are feeling like this isn't for them, right? I could absolutely never do an Uber frugal month. I could absolutely never achieve financial independence. What encouragement do you have for them to at least try it? Unfortunately, it goes back to your goals because it goes back to what matters to you. In some cases, unfortunately, people are in a situation where they really need to save the money, right? So if you have debt, if you are living paycheck to paycheck, if you are not feeling like you can get ahead, I think that you will give yourself a lot of peace and a lot of freedom by doing this. You know, when you are able to become less reliant on your job, you will have a lot more security and a lot less anxiety. And so it's kind, it is about giving yourself more breathing room. It is about knowing how little you could live on if you had to. Again, it's not saying that you have to live sort of the bare bones budget, but I think it's a really nice backstop. One of the things I like about frugality, saving money, is that it's something you can do on your own at any time. It is not reliant on anybody else. You know, I think increasing your income is, is a, obviously the other part of the equation. And we could do a whole nother conversation on that, but that's going to be dependent on other people. 
in whatever facet it is, whether it's getting a raise or getting a side hustle, other people have to pay you money. Saving money, you just start saving money right now by yourself. It's something that you can impact. And so I think that's what's very powerful about it to me is that, you know, you find yourself laid off because of a recession, you can immediately enact the changes of spending less. That to me is, is it's sort of a powerful tool in your ability to be sustainable. And I think there's just such a common narrative around, I can out earn it, right? Okay, I'm struggling with money. I can just make more money. And that does require on external forces that you don't always have control over. So I love that. I love at least embracing the power of cutting back. Okay, Liz, before we let you go, we have to let you try on our Smart Money Mama's sorting hat. (laughs) So the sorting hat is our version of the hot seat where the magical hat asks a question to reveal something about you. Are you ready? I'm ready. What has most surprised you about motherhood? This has to be just one thing. Oh, it could be whatever Chelsea. you want. Oh my gosh. Um, I, what has most surprised me? It could be as many things as you want. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is how much time do we have? I think something that has really surprised me is how much stronger it has made my marriage. It has just brought us so much closer because we have this like incredible shared purpose of ensuring that these two little people become successful big people. And it has really given us kind of like a new focus as a couple. And it has brought my priorities into like the sharpest alignment. My use of time, my use of money is so much more refined because the vision and the goal really just kind of narrowed for me. You know, it's like, oh, there's all these wonderful things. And then you have a kid and it's like, boom, I am so focused on, on, you know, these very discrete goals. And so for us, it was, um, I think it did that. It brought brought us closer in our relationship and just made us such better stewards of our resources of time and money. What a blessing. I know so many people feel like their relationship struggles, especially when their kids are toddlers. So I love that you guys have that that shared vision and purpose. Sleep training. <laughs> that I mean, really and truly, because truly. they go to bed and then Nate and I have a couple hours in the evening together and we can sit and talk and watch TV. And I think that for us is the transformational piece. Our kids go to bed super early and some other parents are like, why don't you try to push it out? And I was like, well, then I don't have a couple hours with Jeremiah at the end of the day. So I think that I totally agree yeah, with no, you. No, our kids go to bed at 6.30. I mean, that's... Yeah, George is usually down by... Who's our two-year-old is down by 6 and Hank by 6.30, so... Nice. It, it, yeah. may, it really for, it makes such a big difference, I think. All right, Liz, where can people follow up with you and take your Uber Frugal Challenge? So you can find me at frugalwoods.com. And then it's pretty straightforward. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at frugalwoods. Love it. And guys, check out Liz's Instagram for sure because she has great pictures of her homestead and what's going on over there. But thanks for joining us so much, Liz, and hope we get to talk to you again soon. Thank you so much for having me. Mamas, I always love talking to Liz. Her homestead is 100% my husband's dream. And with our kids so close in age, her hilarious parenting stories are a good reminder that maybe I'm not the only one raising somewhat wild, feral children. But her story, her money journey, it's really just so amazing. It was great to share a bit of it with you, though I highly recommend buying Liz's book, Meet the Frugal Woods, for the full story, because Liz is truly a beautiful writer. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. I want to call out really clearly that even if complete financial independence in your early 30s, never having to work again, isn't in the cards for your situation, because there is immense privilege there, as we mentioned in the episode, Liz's story is still an example of how much things can change when you really align your money with your values and your unique goals. When you're able to build enough of a cushion to step out of the crowd and spend your money differently or move somewhere different, or commit to your passions, then you can really start building your life around who you are. As always, I've rounded up my top three favorite takeaways from this conversation with Liz that you can think about as you consider your own financial freedom journey. First, you have to decide what your definition of success and fulfillment is. I just mentioned this a little bit, but it has to be our first takeaway because it's so crucial. Liz and her husband lived in different cities, tried different levels of spending, different ways to find fulfillment. But for a long time, they were caught on the path of what they thought they were supposed to do, who they were supposed to be. And getting out of that mental place isn't always easy, especially when you're trying to do it from the middle of your normal day. 
I love how Liz mentioned that she and her husband really needed to get out in the woods away from what used to be their day to day to find clarity and have big conversations. Maybe you start to find the space to think about what success means to you on regular walks in the woods or at your local park. Maybe you develop a meditation practice like Glennon Doyle did in her closet at home. Maybe you go for a long drive with your partner. Whatever it is, you need to start finding at least the glimmers of what matters to you and the type of life you want and start working towards that. Because if you keep trying to find fulfillment in someone else's life structure, you're going to get stuck in a frustration loop. Not to mention, changing your money habits will be a heck of a lot easier when you're moving towards a definition of success that holds value for you. Second, experimental spending can help you find the right level of frugal or not frugal that works for you. Liz and her husband speeded their financial independence journey by drastically cutting their expenses, DIYing anything they could, getting furniture from the side of the road, and generally being thrifty. Yet just jumping to that lifestyle A, is likely to feel really uncomfortable at first, and B, isn't for everyone. Remember how you have to find your own definition of success? You have to find your own level of spending too. I really appreciated Liz's suggestion of testing a week or month when you spend freely and weeks or months when you're super frugal and then taking good notes. Which expenses were worth it to you? When were you overall happier? When did you feel closer to your partner and your kids? It's money science. You have to test different scenarios to find what works. There is no perfect right way to budget or spend money. Let yourself do the trial and error to figure out what you value and how you best want to use your money. And finally, third, financial independence isn't all or nothing. Sometimes people hear about the idea of fire and write it off as some crazy thing only the very few can achieve. And in its most literal way that it's often portrayed in the media, someone saving 70% of their income and retiring in their 30s, that's true. Not everyone can do that. But pursuing fire is more than that version of the story. You're still retiring early if you stop working at 55 or 60 instead of 65 or 70. You're benefiting from financial independence if you can build up a big enough cash cushion to speak up when something unjust is happening at work or when you can walk away from a job with a toxic boss or schedule without having another job lined up yet or to start a business you love or simply the freedom and independence to go through your day not wondering how you're going to make ends meet. Whether your goal is to retire to a rural homestead like Liz, or you simply want money to have less control over your life, pursuing financial independence is a worthy goal that can bring you more peace. You've got this. Mamas, I want to thank Liz again for joining me on the show and sharing her incredible story. As a reminder, for a full summary of today's takeaways, with links to Liz's site, including her free Uber Frugal Challenge and her book, Meet the Frugal Woods, head to smartmoneymamas.com forward slash Liz. Thanks for hanging out with us today. Keep talking money, mamas. I'll see you next time.